Hello and welcome back to the Relationship Matters podcast. We believe relationship matters from humanity to nature to the larger whole. I'm your host, Katie Churchman, and over the next three episodes, I'm talking with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, co-authors of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. The book, due to be released in May by HarperCollins Publishing, reveals how to go beyond the ordinary rules and tools of mindfulness. It's a field guide for navigating the noise of the modern world, not just the noise in our ears, but also on our screens and in our heads. Drawing on lessons from neuroscience, business, spirituality, politics, and the arts, Mars and Zorn explore why auditory, informational, and internal silence is essential for physical health, mental clarity, ecological sustainability, and vibrant community. In part three, we're zooming out even further and looking at silence as a tool for transformation. Across the conversation, we're exploring how silence can help us to repair our world and how it can help us to rethink the structures which organize our lives. So without further ado, I bring you Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. Lee, Justin, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. Good to be here. It's a joy to be with you again. So today we're building off our last two episodes and looking at silence as a tool for for transformation. I guess I want to start with this idea of shared silence that you talk about in the book. How can we possibly be silent together? Because I guess my understanding was was that silence is a solo sport. Yeah, you're not alone in that. And I think we would join you in that initial understanding. We we were doing early interviews and asking people about the deepest silence they'd ever known. And more often than not, they were reporting moments when their silence was shared, when they were with other people or even many, many other people. And so it's we started to get this sense of like, oh, this is interesting. We, like many, have conflated this idea that silence means solitude. And for some of us, it does. But then actually, as we looked at our own lives and thought about the deepest silence we've ever known, they were always with other people or usually with other people, say, and that we find silence when it's shared to be magnified. Mm. Mm. Yeah, this is really one of the key ways that we want to reframe the meaning of silence as it's understood in the culture in this book. You know, and that's this idea, as Lee mentioned, you know, that silence and solitude are often conflated. You know, as we ask people, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? As we've talked about in, in our previous parts here, we really expected people to talk about moments that were auditorily silent. But the most poignant moments of silence people described were often moments with other people, you know, moments of shared grief or taking in breathtaking beauty or moments of shock or moments of wonder. And what we found is that these were the moments when people would drop their obligations to verbalize and rationalize and entertain one another and analyze. And, you know, to go back to a theme we've been discussing with you, these are the times when people just become present. Mm. Silence is presence. There's that theme again that's been running throughout these three episodes. And so I guess I wonder what's what's the potential that you found when we we have shared silence? We're silent together. Hmm. In the section of the book on quiet together, we first talk about how 
at the U.S. Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, the folks who drafted the U.S. Constitution asked that there be a giant mound of dirt outside the convention hall. Now, Constitution Hall, it's known, so that, you know, the sounds of carriages and street vendors and conversations outside wouldn't disturb their intense focus together. You know, it's not like they were going for like monastic silence. We imagine they were probably yelling and even throwing things at each other, given the social mores of the day. But they wanted to create these conditions where they could be silent, have deep, immersive silence to do their thinking. And we talk about, you know, some 230 something years later, I was uh, legislative director for three Democratic members of Congress and worked as a policy advisor to the Congressional Progressive Caucus and founded a meditation program that helped, helped out Congressman Tim Ryan, a Democrat from Ohio, and bringing that to being. And I was uh, one of the first meditation teachers in the program. And I was sort of the only person to be both a policymaker on Capitol Hill and a, and a meditation teacher in that program. So I had a, an unusual window into it because I, I really knew life there intimately. And at the same time, you know, I was guiding, I guess you'd say, or, or just helping out a group of policymakers from, you know, both Republicans and Democrats, you know, conservatives and progressives alike, you know, sitting in this room under an American flag with gold trim and fancy blue carpet and everyone wearing suits, taking this radical departure from the culture of the place which is usually constant talking and TV news blaring and alarms signaling when we're supposed to take votes. And here we were just sitting in silence. And there was about 35 of us just exploring how to make friends with our minds. But more than anything, just being in the space together, not talking, if it's possible, not even thinking so much, just tuning into the silence. And, you know, for, for me, observing that moment, there was a real shift in the energy. And it wasn't a panacea. It wasn't like that dealt with all the problems facing Capitol Hill and this and that. I mean, all that was still there. But, you know, to this word that we've used prerequisite, it felt like finding that space of resetting, turning down the nervous system and tuning in together to silence felt like a prerequisite to any other healing and reason and reconciliation that could really happen. That's been a theme lately of the podcasts. I've done a couple with Marita around slowing down mm. and that slowing down doesn't necessarily change anything, but it creates the space for that change to happen. And it feels like silence is a tool for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's actually a, there's a bit of a motto we use for one of the four day deep retreats that I do with scientists who are working to remove harmful chemicals from our homes and our products and our environment. And we say, slow down, there isn't much time. Mm. Slow down, there isn't much time because, you know, we have, at least in the United States, some 80,000 largely unregulated unre chemicals in our products. And the way the system is set up here, you have to prove it's harmful, not prove that it's safe. So it's just, you know, the burdens on all the wrong places. So these scientists come together. These are scientists, government workers, sometimes from Europe as well, NGOs and manufacturers who are interested in addressing this topic. We go out to the redwoods to really slow down because there isn't much time. And while we do engage the data, we do talk about the impact. I'm just facilitating this. I'm, I'm not a chemist sharing this information, but I'm facilitating their process. Just getting them to slow down and be with this 
the temptation is to perhaps to share way more data than anyone could even process. But in this space of just slowing down, sinking into the importance of addressing this in a different way, that the answer not be the same old answers that we've, you know, they've reached for before, that sort of whack-a-mole sort of strategy of ban one chemical, tweak a molecule, get its cousin that is just as bad or worse. They need to think really way differently, way out of the box and around <laughs> this bigger issue. And slowing down has been the thing that we've seen as being most effective to take these big retreats. So some of the strategies that have been hatched out of these four days, they are currently the most effective strategies that are working to address harmful chemicals, more like families of chemicals instead of one at a time. But that came from that deep, deep silence and that slowing down that you and Marina have been talking about. Wow. I mean, silence is a a sort of solution to creative problems. It feels like there's so much in silence. It's healing. It's something that we can do together. It's something that can help us to think outside the box. I'm wondering in terms of though, silence feeling awkward still in shared spaces. I love the idea of bringing it into lots of different places. And I wonder how we might be able to encourage this because it it doesn't feel comfortable for many people to be silent alone, let alone silent in a shared space. Oh, I can tell you about some awkwardness with my mom and my Betty, her wife of 30 years. So as a family, we were welcoming them from the Midwest where they were moving. They packed up all their belongings and their cats, moved across the country to California to be with all these grandbabies. And we knew that they would stay with us initially on the first part of that trip for as long as it took, right? A few months or something like that. So they came and it was wonderful and they were helping with childcare and they were doing doing homework and they were helping with carpooling and making chocolate chip bread. But what it didn't take long for me to notice is that their contributions were huge, but their devices, you know, they were like great guests, but their devices were horrible guests because they were set on all these default settings. So every time that Betty ticked out a message, you know, it was like click, 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 click. So it was the key typing and then there's ringtones and <laughs> you know, whooshing and swooshing. And then their heavy metal guitar riff that my mom had on it was, it was a cacophony of sound that I (laughs) hadn't come in contact with. And my office is right beside their bedroom. And here we are this once again, Justin and I are writing this book thinking, who are we to be writing this book on silence when our lives are so noisy? (laughs) How am I going to, however, am I going to have this conversation? You know what they're doing? I just, well, you know, we're so excited about them moving out. And yet here I am about to have this really challenging conversation. Mom and Betty, could we, could I turn those things off? You know, do you want some help with that? And they said, no, it's fine. No, it doesn't bother us. And then I had to confess that it was actually bothering me, making it hard for me. So they said, okay, if it means that much to you, dear, we can uh, we can change those settings or you can change those settings on my phone. So sometimes it is an awkward conversation to get to that place of silence. You know, it wasn't what they need. I remember Betty told me that she thought to herself, well, I'll just turn all those clicking whooshings on when I, you know, when we move out, but she ended up not doing that. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't their need. It was my need, but they met me. And I also checked in on that relationship to make sure that they really knew how much it meant to me, how much less agitated I felt, how, how nice it was to share a meal and not be interrupted by the telerobico calls and all those things. You know, these things were not bothering them, but they were bothering me. And because we're close, they made that difference. And the same can be kind of extrapolated on a team, you know, 
I'm not being able to focus on my content because, you know, we're constantly on chat or, you know, everything is interrupted. So we take that lesson from my mom and my Betty to the workplace and encourage, like Justin was saying, to have real conversations, to make some shared agreements so that we can each find the the quiet and the conversation that we need to get the work done. We have a section, you know, about how to talk about quiet and and how it's this paradox that (laughs) finding shared silence often starts with more talking. You know, sometimes it's a whole lot more conversation, you know, and and looking to the Lee's mom and her Betty, that example, you know, we point to some really simple best practices for how to have those kinds of conversations, you know, how to hold those conversations, how to approach them, because you're right, Katie, it can be really awkward. You know, so the principles we talk about are, you know, first looking inward, you know, before you confront someone else about not making so much noise or holding spaces for silence, you know, doing all audit of your own noise. You know, what kind of noise are you creating? You know, do you have the kind of credibility to bring this forward into the world, uh, you know, or into your relationship or your community? Another principle we talk about is, is identifying your golden rules. Like we talk a lot in this book about, you know, what's in our sphere of control, what's in our sphere of influence, you know, and what's in the everything else category. So one thing we really emphasize here in this work of quiet together is find what are your golden rules? What are the principles of how to guard the shared silence that you are going to abide by? Susan Griffin Black, the co-CEO of EO Products, which has become a really big natural products personal care company, has this golden rule to never be on her phone or computer when someone is talking to her. You know, no multitasking when she's with someone else. And it's a pretty mighty thing she's doing, having a big company she's running. You know, a third principle we offer is to look out for others, you know, to champion other people's quiet where it's appropriate. You know, if you see someone who maybe has less power than you do in an organization, maybe there's less that's in their sphere of influence or control. How can you work, you know, always in consultation with them to create the conditions for them to have the peace and the focus that they need? Yeah. Michael Barton was one of our interviewees. He, he was higher up in an organization and an analyst who didn't have a lot of power in the organization was complaining about his inability to focus on his work. And he had an idea for how that could be addressed. And his idea, and we love this one, is to tap, to have a red sash of fabric, like kind of think Miss America or something, you know, red sash that you might put over your neck to say almost like out of office, even though your body is right there. You know, a lot of these workplaces, they have open office workplaces to supposedly, you know, have collaboration and sparks and, you know, conversations and cross-pollination take place. But this analyst and many others complain about the inability to focus. So we suggested this red sash. Michael took it up the chain, got approval. And for for a bit there anyway, they used this red sash to honor the fact that that person was trying to focus and work deeply. And then when they took that off, they could be more in conversation because the sales people and the marketing people were always you know talking and <laughs> they didn't really see the problem. But the analysts, the data people were having trouble focusing. So this is not because we think the red sash is the answer answer to all things because we certainly don't. And it wasn't the answer in that company for very long either. But it opened a dialogue and got them thinking about creative ways and getting experimental about how to solve that issue about noise and, and silence and the ability to focus. 
And that's kind of indicative of our whole approach with respect to workplaces is, you know, as Lee mentioned, get experimental, like, you know, to this whole idea that the silence can be uncomfortable, as we talked about recently with you, you know, that it could be awkward. How do we find ways, given how valuable the silence is, to experiment with new innovations like that red sash that Mark, Michael Barton started? Launch your experiment, something like that red sash, whatever it might be, you know, it might be no email. Fridays. It might be no meeting Wednesdays. It might be changing some expectations around electronic devices, but launch the experiment and harvest the lessons learned, refine it and iterate, you know, make sure it's safe to fail. These experiments aren't meant to be perfect. They're meant to be opportunities to learn and help the organization evolve in good ways. Mm, I love this. Yeah. I think if there's one more thing I could say is bring in humor. <laughs> Bring in some play, for goodness sake, when you can. We did interview the front woman for Roz and Coven, the, um, an umpteen piece musical troupe that defies categorization, really. And her name's Midnight Rose. And she talked about being in this 13-piece band and how if everyone, with all these very talented musicians, right? But if everyone plays at the same time, there's no room for the music. There's no, <laughs> there's no space to hear the subtleties and things like that. So periodically when they're in their practice sessions, someone yells out, Pumpernickel. And what does that mean? That means like, let's thin out the process. Let's find the space in the music. Let's insert some silence, bring in some silence so we can hear the musicality more. So this is a totally eccentric band coming up with an eccentric idea, which is to holler out Pumpernickel, which we really discovered is the whole point of our book is to call Pumpernickel on the whole wide world. <laughs> we need more thinning out, more space and silence and everything. So, you know, if you and your family or your workplace or your life with your friends can bring that play and yeah, that it just makes it that much easier and helps address that awkward piece, you know, or maybe, you know, takes it on in a fun way. I love this noise audit idea and do your own noise audit because I think it'd be very easy to say, well, it's not my fault. The world's loud. It's noisy. There's not much I can do. And actually what this does is create that accountability piece. Boundaries that you were talking about there made me think, my husband and I had a holiday last year for a week and I uh, challenged him to not look at his emails and uh, he was really struggling with that. And I said, well, look, why not tell them to to call you on your personal phone if you, you're really needed? Mm. And he, he thought, OK, I'll give it a try. No one called him. So he didn't have to look at the, the mass of noise that comes in on emails, because even if there is one or two that are important, you see the hundreds of other emails that aren't. And I think he found a lot of quiet and space in that week that otherwise he wouldn't have found. And so I just thought that was interesting as well, that sometimes we blame other people, we blame the noise, but actually what are we doing when we're replying constantly? We're creating it ourselves. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to look at where we're engaging and that just, you know, we don't often think our noise is noise, right? It's sound, <laughs> but you know, it's really important sound. My husband, when he auto dictates texts, he doesn't think that's noisy, <laughs> you know, so I have to kind of let him like, actually, that seems kind of noisy to be on, you know. So, so we have to kind of remind ourselves and each other that, that that is noise experienced over here. There's this quote from the acoustical expert Arjun Shankar. He says, sound is when you mow your lawn. Noise is when your neighbor mows their lawn. And music is when your neighbor mows your lawn. 
Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. That pretty much nails it. Yeah. <laughs> One thought that keeps coming up for me, Katie, on this on this noise audit, you know, sometimes when we talk about a noise audit, you know, in the context of say an organization, you know, you intuitively think of, well, what what are the decibel levels in the office and that sort of thing? Maybe what's the volume of email? But what we challenge readers and really organizational leaders and members of teams to do in this book is to think more deeply about all the subtle kinds of noise that permeate an organization too, that might get ignored. And to think about really creative, new out-of-the-box kinds of solutions. I mean, none of this is really prescriptive, like go and do this, but we offer ideas and examples so that people can go and experiment. You know, so brainstorming is a big one within organizations. It's often just really noisy, which is to say that all the best perspectives aren't necessarily being surfaced because there's all sorts of dynamics of power within the group where some people tend to dominate conversations and some people feel that kind of censorship, that kind of false silence that we talked about in an earlier discussion, that silence of censorship prevents people from really surfacing their best ideas. So one you know, line we follow in a section we call Ma on the Job, with Ma being the traditional Japanese aesthetic principle of reverence for empty spaces in between. You know, Ma on the Job we take into brainstorming. Hmm. And what does that mean in practice and brainstorming? It means, you know, that there's an option to sleep on a question, to give it some space and some silence rather than needing to decide on it in the moment, in the heat of conversation, maybe even the heat of argument, revisit the inquiry in the next day, you know, or consider nonverbal report outs, you know, post-it note galleries rather than everyone shouting over each other, you know, make space in the deliberation so that quieter voices and more marginalized voices can come forth and maybe come to the center. This is in a very everyday, almost mundane way. This is part of how we understand that silence is part of the work of justice. Mm-hmm. Mm, love that. The ma, the ma of the everyday. And I think I'm just seeing now silence is really an ally of intercultural intelligence. Linda Ballot talked about that a lot in uh, season three. Faith and Yuri had an a, example of this where they're both co-leading in Japan. And Faith asked a question and uh, she was shocked because everyone went silent. She, she asked the question again and everyone was sitting there thinking. And I just think about so many teams and how there's probably a dominant communication style that's to maybe verbally express or to think out loud and how that might be getting in the way just as she say of uh, some of the quieter voices and the thoughts that haven't been said out loud yet. She tells us that uh, a story of that Faith has shared with her co-leading with Yuri and Yuri giving her those little elbow jabs. <laughs> no, wait, wait, be patient because that our, our reflex, at least in, in the US, is to think like, oh, they didn't, they didn't understand the question. I can say it a different way. I see coaches doing this a lot too, piling, piling on questions instead of giving the client some space to actually receive it. And receiving a question a real inquiry and taking it sort of through the channel of the body to really sense it takes time. That's not instant lightning fast. It takes time to really sink in to what to a, a, a really well asked question, a powerful question is going to take some time to process, to metabolize. So the more we can give a little space to the answer to be, to be a real one and not a reflexive one, like, how are you? 
you know, I could say fine instantly, but mm. if I really want an answer to that, like a deeper, I would need to give some actual space. And that's what Faith was finding when she was uh, encountering her colleagues in Japan and Yuri was doing her elbow, elbow jab training to get, oh, no, wait, wait, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. We love that story. That's Ma on the job, Ma on life, bringing more Ma to life. Yeah. We look in, in some of the chapters on, on the spirit of silence, you know, we have chapters on the science of silence and the spirit of silence. Why the great wisdom traditions of the world, spiritual, religious, philosophical traditions all agree on this notion that silence is essential for clarifying the consciousness, that silence is a pathway to truth. We look at the, the meaning of Ma and we even look at the meaning of the kanji characters in the Japanese language. And literally it means sunlight pouring through the slats in a basically a remote temple gate. It's like this image of sunlight pouring through. That's this meaning of Ma. So when Faith asks, you know, her students, ask people in a meeting, how are you this morning? And they pause for a long time and Faith gets really uncomfortable. And, you know, Yuri's jabbing her and telling her not to fill the space immediately. You know, in time, Faith actually came to appreciate that this like what seemed just like this really strange quirk was really the expression of something profound. This willingness to be comfortable in the silence with another person, to be present, to really contemplate. How are you this morning? You know, and how that presence with other people, this is like an antidote to the tyranny of the fastest and the loudest. So if she could get over her conditioning to just fill the space with sound and stimulus constantly, you know, it's like she realized she can, she could have this golden silence pour forth, this golden sunlight enter the gates. As you know, Faith is one of those people who is so committed to learning everywhere she goes. So Yuri really emphasizes that she was one who was totally open to that feedback, but she was bringing her New England self kind of fast, fast, fast to these encounters and then meeting a culture that has that space for real contemplation. There's one more fun fact about this, this word ma that we keep using, ma is transliterated, but manuke means to be without ma, and that is a fool, a simpleton. Japanese. Manuke is someone without ma. Interesting. I guess I'm wondering then, with regards to societies that don't value silence so much, in some ways it seems maybe as the opposite of what success holds in its sort of wider, more stereotypical definitions. I, I'm wondering how we can bring sort of success and silence into alignment. It's mm, a really important question, Katie. And this really also gets, I think, to the social heart of the book, you know, because this this is really a book about how we how we make some changes in our communities and our whole societies. And, you know, we live in a society where success is often equated with sound and stimulus. As a society, we tend to measure success in terms of how much we produce. And that's mm -hmm. often measured through economic indicators like gross domestic product. We talk in the book about how, you know, the way we measure gross domestic product, the way we measure the economy, which is often a kind of symbol for how a government is doing, how a president or prime minister is faring. Is the economy growing? What's the growth rate? You know, we measure GDP, for example, by chopping down a forest to collect the wood to sell it at a hardware store, because that is a measurable 
exchange that happens in the economy that's showing that economic progress is happening. And we don't measure the value of the pristine forest that's kept intact. And we know with respect to climate change and the environmental and many other challenges we're facing now, that's a deeply problematic dynamic. But what we talk to, what we talk about in this book is that the same dynamic applies with respect to our attention. If we take our attention and we chop it up basically like that chopped wood and we put it on Facebook or Instagram and turn it into (laughs) eyeballs on advertisements rather than pristine attention, rather than time spent in nature or time spent playing with your children or time spent listening to birds. That's the economic value. Just like the intact forest is priced economically at zero under our systems of measurement and gross domestic product, the value of pristine human attention is placed at zero. So a big part of this book is looking at this question, what if this pristine attention, what if the spaces of silence were seen as not just you know, something maybe that could be helpful perhaps for health and wellness, but actually seen as a public good, which is to say that people throughout the culture recognize that pristine human attention, space and silence is something truly valuable, but also that even governments and players in the economic system, investors and big corporations see this as something valuable that is their purpose to help deliver. You know, how would that change the dynamics of the attention economy? How would that change our workplaces? And really this issue with the GDP and what it measures and what it doesn't measure is put so perfectly in this speech given by Robert F. Kennedy and 1968, just a few months before his assassination. Uh, If you don't mind, I'll just read some of that. It's just perfectly put. It counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear out highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifles and Specs knives and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. In the later chapters of the book, we turn from the work of finding silence as individuals and families and workplaces and even communities. We then turn toward what we call a society that honors silence. In this section of the book, we actually look at what it could look like, what it might mean to reform our systems of economic measurement to value pristine attention, to value silence. And this is based on some work I've been doing you know, for more than 10 years now looking at how to reform GDP to look more deeply at human well-being and worked on legislation in Congress around how to do this and done academic research on it. We apply that kind of lens here. And, you know, as we think about 
you know, folks who might not necessarily be working in the realms of public policy and law, these same ideas really apply, you know, because this same principle of GDP growth as progress applies to us as individuals too. You know, there's this same idea as productivity, as progress in our lives, you know, and it's like, as the societal level, that looks like, you know, GDP growth is the answer. But at the individual personal level, it's kind of an ethos that says, oh, you can rest when you're dead. You know, it's like that same productivity that can be quantified and measured in numerical terms is the be all end all. And what we want to do in this book is talk about, you know, this space of what what we talk about from a, a Swiss contemplative from about a hundred years ago, Max Picard, he writes about silence as holy uselessness, as this space, as this, this presence that doesn't have any good use outside of itself and is nonetheless what he says, holy. It's something that's sacred in our lives. It's something that doesn't have an agenda, but that has inherent meaning. Would you say then silence is a fundamental human need and a human right? Mm. I would say silence is our birthright. Yeah, absolutely. Feels integral to being human. And just in case it's sounding like hard to reach or impossible in any way, it's like our sense is that silence is something we know. Silence is something we're here to remember. You know, some part of us, maybe it's our own childhood. So maybe it's just more like a human basic collective memory. That silence is important to us. It's necessary. It's critical. Maybe like how whales just know to migrate or birds just know to migrate. Something very core human to this need for silence, including shared silence. Feels um, sort of separate from output and input. It's the, the space in between that probably allows both to happen in a much more skillful and safe and holistic way for all of us to thrive. One final thought. I'm wondering, would you say leaning into this silence then, in a way it's systemic because it's connecting us with so many different parts of ourselves and the wider world? You know, when we first set out to write this book, Katie, we were a little bit nervous to even present it to the big publishers because it touches on so many different themes. You know, it goes deep into neuroscience and psychology, but then it also goes really deep into economics and politics and organizational design. And then it goes super deep into questions of spirituality and psychedelics and deepest human experiences. And we were really pleasantly surprised by the response that our publisher and some of the other publishers who, you know, ended up making offers on the book were really saying, yeah, this, they were getting the idea that this is something systemic, as you put it, you know, it's something that's systemic to us as human systems, as systems of biology and psychology and systems of, of meaning and values and systems of communities and workplaces and organizations, whole societies. Systemic is a really good way to put it. And we feel that there's a systemic lack of silence in our world right now. Mm -hmm. So it kind of comes back to why we wrote this book in the first place. I think we shared with you that you know, we were contemplating this question, what are we going to do about this crazy world? How can we possibly bring a little bit more sanity? You know, and we're both people who do work on, you know, systems in different ways, you know, national and regional, you know, state level legislation and policy change. 
and change for corporate culture and company standards and all these different dimensions to it. But like, as we examined that question, Katie, we kept being like, gosh, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction for every intervention we try to launch to make things better from our point of view. What can we really do right now to try to have a positive impact? And the answer that just kept coming to both of us is find more silence, help people navigate the noise, but more than anything, make this shift a little bit more possible by helping people recognize the importance of appreciating silence. Mm -hmm. The meditation we've been on for these five years and that we encourage your listeners to do as well as to notice noise and to really notice that with their full being, the real true impact in what they're trying to do and the real true impact in the relationships they're having, the real true impact, just their alignment with self and to tune into silence and to really feel what happens. <laughs> what do they notice? What are they present to? What's possible if we all tune in? What do you think is possible if all of us tuned in a tiny bit more to silence. This makes me feel almost weepy. I mean, I think the way we will start with maybe how we are to ourselves, how hard we drive ourselves, how we sometimes get in the habit of numbing or overriding what's needed in the body or um, what our heart truly desires and living that way for however long we live that way. So I see a lot of potential for how we can be more true in ourselves, to ourselves, kind to ourselves, compassionate. And then I open up to how that would look in relationship. We were more tuned into those things and then turning out to relationship, how we may be more present for one another, our attention, as we said, which is so, so like a prayer. And then how we would be with nature how we would treat her and respect her, her intrinsic value outside of ours, our need for her, <laughs> our need for those resources. And this, this question, Katie, and these beautiful reflections, Lear, you know, reminding me of the, the question we pose in the opening words of the book, and you know, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And this is one of those questions that we offer some ideas and some we envision in some ways in the book. But we really want to turn this question to, to you, to the reader, to the listener, mm -hmm. and to, to feel into what's the deepest silence you've ever known, you know, that there's no need to overthink it, just the first thing that comes to you, and to really ground and be present with the question. What's the deepest silence you've ever known? And as you, as you feel it, as you contemplate how your nervous system feels, how spacious your mind feels, how spacious things might feel in your body when you really tune into this, this silence, you know, from there, turning to all of these areas of, of life that Lee's pointing to, our relationships with one another, our relationship to nature, how we exchange ideas, how we think about meaning and purpose in our lives. To do all of this, to contemplate all these questions from this place of the deepest silence. This is, uh, this is really the, the invitation that we hope to offer with this book. Mm. Yeah, Katie, if I can, I'd love to know you're such a thoughtful person. And this is all about just sort of sensing where we are and the point we hold on the bowl. What, what do you see as possible? This whole conversation has felt like a meditation and very present conversation with you both. And it feels like something that's very possible. Um, I said this to you offline, but after reading this book, I didn't come away with a sense of, oh, I've got something else to do or something else to add or someone else to be. It felt like it was very much in my grasp and it's in everyone's grasp. It's a superpower that we all have and we all hold. And I think that is so exciting that we all have that. It's not something we have to add or to build. 
or to change mm. is something we all hold and it's a right that we all have and what might be possible from there. Love Thank that. you both. This has been a gorgeous journey talking with you both about this, this amazing work. Thank you, Katie, for this opportunity. Such a joy to talk with you. I want to say a big thanks to Lee and Justin for these three hugely helpful and insightful episodes and wish them all the best with their book launch of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise coming out May of this year. Here are my key takeaways from part three of the conversation. In order to create quiet together, work out what your golden rules are, champion other people's quiet and do your own noise audit first. Where can you create more space for silence for yourself and those around you? Launch an experiment, harvest the lessons learned and embrace a freedom to fail so there's permission to continue to prototype different quiet together strategies. The idea of quiet together can encourage quieter voices to share their ideas during brainstorming sessions. For example, can you encourage people to sleep on the question and revisit it the next day? Or consider non-verbal report outs like creating post-it note galleries. Make space in the deliberation so that quieter voices and more marginalised voices can come forth and maybe come to the centre. In an everyday mundane way, this is how we understand silence as part of the work of justice. We live in a society where success is often equated with sound and stimulus. And we tend to measure success in terms of how much we produce, which is measured through economic indicators like gross domestic product or GDP. And the value of pristine human attention is valued at zero according to GDP. What if this attention and these spaces of silence were seen as a public good? as something recognised as truly valuable by governments and investors. How would that change our attention economy, our workplaces and our relationships? For over 18 years, CRR Global has accompanied leaders, teams and practitioners on their journey to build stronger relationships by focusing on the relationship itself, not only the individuals occupying it. This leads to a community of changemakers around the world. Supported by a global network of faculty and partners, we connect, inspire and equip change agents to shift systems one relationship at a time. We believe relationship matters, from humanity to nature to the larger whole.